to be our guide, our counselor, our strengthener, our standby. We thank you, Lord, that by the truth of your word and the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit, we are conformed to the image of Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for direction and utterance this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But before I get to the uh, text scripture, or the first scripture we'll use, I have probably never preached a message that will be second-guessed more than this one. I want to speak to you this morning on what every Christian should know. I've picked four points, but they could just as easily be 40 or 400. Because the entirety of our life is supposed to be growing in the knowledge of him. Coming to the realization of things that we know. And I also realize that the things that we would choose... If, if each one of us was making a list, what four things do you consider to be the most important things for a Christian to know? Is greatly determined by our point of view of God and even our personalities. For example, if our friend, dear friend Keith Hershey was here preaching this message, he'd probably find four different ways to tell you how you're loved by God. Well, love doesn't make my list of four things. And so as I said, we would all pick or at least all could pick different things to emphasize. But I'm going to share with you the four things that the Lord put on my heart. Wouldn't that be all right? The first point is that reality is not just what you see. Now, let me say again, these are four things that Christians should know. None of these things would certainly be true of the unsaved. For the unsaved, the most important thing to know is Jesus and come into his family. But once we're in the family of God, we still have a purpose. I, uh, I grew up in a Baptist church, Southern Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama. Wonderful people, Centerpoint Baptist. Wonderful people. Well, they started off as Centerpoint Baptist, and then they got dignified and called themselves the First Baptist Church of Centerpoint. <laughs> Had to get that first in there after a while, I guess. But they were wonderful people, but everything about the services and the, the pastor's messages and so forth was to come to Jesus, the purpose of coming to Jesus, finding Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, folks, nothing could be more important than that. We would certainly all agree to that. But once you're in, then what? There's got to be something more for the believer. And one of the things that I think is critical is to recognize the importance of the spirit realm. Second Corinthians chapter 4 Beginning in verse 16, Paul said, for, though, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, he's talking about tests, trials, and troubles. 
our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding weight and exceeding an eternal weight of glory. Now think about who's writing this. Paul's writing this from jail. He's talking about our light affliction. In this same letter, he goes into great detail about the things that he suffered in his preaching and in his willingness to be faithful to the work that God gave him to do. But he calls it a light affliction. He must know something that most people don't know. We would take things that come against us and in a lot of ways many of those things wouldn't measure up to much of anything compared to what he experienced. But he called it a light affliction. Now there's a reason that he called it a light affliction and it's not because it didn't really hurt. I'm sure those beatings that he took really hurt. I'm sure there were times where he was greatly dismayed by the trouble that he found himself in. He talks about being in a, a night and a day in the deep. In the waters or seas. Without any knowledge of what was going to happen next. But he calls them light afflictions. And the reason he calls them light afflictions is because he realizes that there's something going on that's more than he can see. And I think that's important for us to see as well. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen. Folks, the best advice anybody can ever give you when you're in trouble is to look beyond what's going on around you. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are are eternal. That word temporal is an interesting word. It means subject to change. The things that are going on around us, the things we find ourselves in the middle of, those are all subject to change. Now, there are a lot of things that we could uh, take, and I, I really debated about how to present this message this morning. I could give you 32 scriptures for each point and still have plenty to spare. But rather than overwhelm you with Scripture, it used to be when everybody brought their Bibles and everybody had the, the Bible as a book. We didn't consider it a good Sunday morning message unless you're, the pages were smoking when you left the room. <laughs> now with everybody using iPads and iPhones and that type of stuff, it's a little different situation. But it's not my point or my purpose this morning to overwhelm you with Scriptures. We could certainly do that. But rather, I'd rather, but I would rather, I believe it's the will of God to speak to your heart about these things. There's a very real realm that we cannot see with the natural eye. In the Old Testament, you remember the story about Elisha after warning the king of Israel about the king of Syria's plans to ambush him and to attack them and so forth. When the king of Syria finds out that the, the prophet is the one, he thinks there's a spy in his, in his inner circle. And somebody tells him that Elisha the prophet is telling the king of Israel what the king of Syria says in his bedchamber. And so the king of Syria decides to go capture Elisha. 
I don't know why, why he thought that would work. If Elisha knew his plans concerning his attacks on Israel, why wouldn't he know his plans concerning his attack on him? But nevertheless, the king of Syria sends out his army. And in the morning, at first light, Elisha's servant looks out the window of the place that they are. And he's greatly afraid because of the number of the Syrian army that are surrounding them. And Elisha just says something very simple. He says, there are more that are with us than are with them. Now, the servant has a hard time with that. His name was Gehazi. And Gehazi, said, I'm sure it doesn't tell us that he said anything, but I'm sure he's looking at them saying, there's you and there's me. And there's all them. But, Gehaz but uh, Elisha prays. He says, Lord, open Gehazi's eyes so he can see. And when the Lord answered that prayer, Gehazi saw the hillsides were covered with the angels of God and the chariots of fire. I've always wondered if Elisha could see them too or if he just knew they were there. The Bible tells us some other things about the spirit realm too. It tells us on several occasions in both Ezekiel's prophecies as well as Daniel's that the evil kingdoms and the evil kings that set themselves in array against Israel were being governed or influenced by evil spirits. In one place it calls the leader of the country the prince, but the evil spirit that's influencing the king. We know that kingdoms are influenced of the devil. We know that that's his work and his, the way that he works you may remember in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was being tempted of the devil. The devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and offers the glory of them to Jesus. And says, these have been delivered unto me. So there's a very real world going on around us that we can't see with our natural eye. And it's the lack of knowledge on the part of so many believers, Christians today, that cause them to believe, cause them to think that the only thing that there is is what's going on around us. Now, they may also think, well, we know heaven will be our home someday. But they consider heaven just a place of comfort after this realm, after this world is done. But, folks, the spirit realm is just as real today as it's going to be when we go to heaven. And the value of that spirit realm is just as real as it will be then. That brings us to our second point. Turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 11. The second point is very simply God's word is above everything. I'm going to start in verse 1. Of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. For by it, by faith. The elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand. That the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen. Were not made of things which do appear. 
the English translation there is a little bit difficult. But he's very simply saying, everything that you can see is made from what you couldn't see. Well, folks, if that's true, if we didn't have any other scripture in the Bible than that, then what could we conclude about which one is more powerful? The spirit realm that we can't see or the physical realm that we can see? Well, if everything that we can see is made by what we couldn't see, that answers that question pretty easily, doesn't it? So he says, we know through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Then he talks about in uh, in verse 4, Abel's faith and the sacrifice he made. Verse 5, Enoch's faith that caused him not to see death, but to be translated with the Lord, under the Lord. Now notice verse 6. It says, but without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Every translation I can find that says this in verse 6 in a different way talks about believing that God exists. Every person that comes to God must believe that he exists. Well, that's true enough. No argument there. But this scripture means so much more than that. See, the only way you can know anything about God, the only way that mankind received any information about God whatsoever is from God himself. Now, God didn't have to reveal himself, but he chose to. And every revelation we have, every bit of knowledge we have is because of what God revealed of himself and about himself. Now, how did he reveal it? How did he reveal himself? The answer to that is the most simple thing that you could come up with, and that is through the word. The word of God is everything. It's the roadmap. It's the blueprint to the realm that we can't see. So without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. I don't believe that just means must believe that he exists. I believe it means he must believe that God is everything that he said that he is. It's an acceptance of the word of God as truth. That brings you to the place where you can be pleasing unto him. Now granted, most of the things that the word tells us about the unseen realm is in direct contradiction to the realm that we can see. You remember when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden? It says immediately their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. What did they see before that? What was it that they saw? We don't have any any information, any reason to think that they were able to see into the spirit realm before the fall. We know that they witnessed God each afternoon when he would come down and walk in the cool of the day and talk with them. But that doesn't mean that they could see into the spirit realm or see angels before that or see God himself before that. But when they fell, their spiritual eyes became closed. And all they had to work from, the only source of knowledge that they began to work from was what was available in the physical realm. 
they saw themselves in a different light. It's interesting to me that the first thing they saw was themselves. Which is an implication or an indication that they were looking at something else before that. That there was something else that occupied their attention and gathered their attention before they began to see themselves. Now it says they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. Now folks, the fall of man didn't cause clothes to fall off of them. So there was something that they were clothed with before that they lost. I can't help but believe that it was the glory of God that in, encapsulated them, if you will, or clothed them. The Bible talks about the sin puts the light out. I think sin put the light out on them. If they were clothed in light or clothed in the glory of God, they wouldn't have been conscious of themselves in the same way that it says they were when they fell. It wouldn't have been clothing, but it would have been a covering that would be consistent with God and his nature. But they became aware of themselves. Now, the significance of that to me is that they became aware of the physical realm and first and foremost, their attention became focused on themselves. I would love to see the video of what it was like in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Because the source of their knowledge was from God himself. That's the only source they had. Everything that they came to know about this physical realm would have been given to them by God's talking to them and explanation of what he made. But they lost God as the source of their knowledge when they fell. That's one reason for me why the word of God is so precious. I read the 119th Psalm, which is like 175 verses or so. And every verse is David showing his appreciation for God's word. There is nothing more precious to mankind. There is no possession that man has that is more precious than the word of God. The Bible says in Psalm 107, I think, that God has exalted his word above his name. He's exalted his word above his name. Here's what that means. It means what he says is more important than what he can do. It's not a matter of what God can do. And that usually becomes the, the, uh, the point of debate for so many people. What is God able to do? You get these theological discussions that are just insanely stupid. Can God build, uh, make a rock too big for him to lift? Or that favorite of mine, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Those are questions that will really save the world, won't they? But the reality is God has tempered his abilities and set the boundary on them from his own word. 
It's not a matter of what God can do. Don't get me wrong. He can do anything. All things are possible with God. But the issue is not what can he do. It's what does his word say he will do. That brings us to the third point. And that's over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. This word reconciliation means exchange. The good news of, of Jesus is that we exchanged our spiritual death. He took that on himself so that we could have his eternal life. That's what reconciliation means. It means a mutual exchange. To wit, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling or exchanging the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Again, the word exchange. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled unto God. Again, the word exchange. For, here's the reason why we can be reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The third point, the third most important thing that Christians should know is that we have been made by the new birth. We have been made God men and women. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he laments the fact that their living is mere men. The sin that's taking place in their congregation and throughout their church. And it's nothing unusual. It's just the same sin of the world that they were involved in before they gave their lives to Jesus. But Paul, by the Holy Ghost, laments the fact that they're living as mere men. The idea that the devil propagates upon us and the thoughts that he brings to our mind and the accusations that he, mean, that he brings to us are so far removed from what the Bible says we've been made that they're really laughable. This new birth, this new life where God takes away the old spirit, the hardness of heart from us and replaces it with a new spirit and then puts his spirit on the inside of us. That new birth experience is so radical. It's so far beyond anything that we could compare the earth, compare it to here on the earth. That it's amazing the devil can make the accusations that he does against us with a straight face. Romans chapter 5 verse 17. Talking about who we've been made by the blood of Jesus. Says for if by one man's offense. Talking about Adam's sin. Death reigned by one. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace. And of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Folks, there's only one reason that God puts you here on the earth, and that's to have authority. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, after he's made the earth, made the habitation for Adam and Eve, he says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Those words really don't come into full understanding in the English language because it literally means that God made man an exact duplicate of himself. An exact, du an exact duplicate of himself. And he did it for a reason. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over all the work of our hands. God made the earth. He completed everything, saved the creation of man for last, the very last act before he put an end to everything that he made. And he says to Adam and Eve, everything you see here, everything about this new place that you've been put in the middle of, is under your authority. If the cows get into the bean patch, God is in effect saying, don't come to me about it, you fix it. If anything gets out of order, take care of it. Now, folks, God never changes. God's will never changes. If God put man here on the earth to have authority in the beginning... If that was his plan and his purpose and his will in the beginning, why would we imagine his will and his plan and his purpose to be different today? Now, there was certainly a fall where man lost his place, but he never lost his authority. I used to preach, and I've heard many people say it, many people I respect greatly, say, it, say the same thing, and this is, I guess, where I got it from, was from them. But I used to say that when man fell, he lost his authority to Satan. And there are certain things that the Bible says, we mentioned before, where Satan said he had authority over the kingdoms of the world. Well, he did. And he does. But the only way he can work is through deception. So it doesn't mean that every governmental power has to be evil. They can be. And most are because of the influence of the devil that they yield to. But it doesn't mean they have to. See, there's no way if it, for God to give authority over the earth to man that when man fell, God came and took it back. He didn't give it for a short period of time. He gave it for the entirety of the existence of the earth. As long as the earth is here, man will have a place of authority. The Bible tells us in John chapter 5, verse 27, I believe it is, that Jesus had authority here on the earth to exercise judgment. Now, he didn't exercise judgment on man. He didn't judge man. He judged sin. Romans chapter 8 says that he condemned sin in the flesh. And so the judgment that, that he executed here on the earth, the things that he passed judgment on was the devil and his works. And it says that he had authority to do that because he was the son of man, not because he was the son of God. See, the church has got things so backward in our understanding. Most of the church thinks that Jesus came to the earth and did the things that he did because he was the son of God. But if that were true, why did, he, why did he not do them before he was 30 years old? He wasn't any more the son of God at age 30 than he was at age 29. The Bible says Jesus emptied himself of the heavenly power and glory he had before the world's were. 
and came to earth as a man. He emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. John chapter 17, when Jesus, Jesus is praying under the Father on the night that he was betrayed and taken captive to begin the, all the events that took place surrounding the crucifixion. He prayed and said, Father, return unto me the glory that I had with you before the worlds were. Now, if he had that when he was here on the earth, why would he be asking for it? It's proof positive that he did not have that power and glory. That was what he laid aside. That was the, the heavenly power and glory he laid aside to come to the earth. Well, if he wasn't operating as the Son of God in that context, the Son of God who was equal with the Father with the same power and glory that he had before the worlds were created, if that's not what he's operating under, what is he operating under? What is the source of his power? Well, folks, the only thing that we have to go by is what the Word reveals to us. And it tells us that Jesus began to do miracles and healings and signs and wonders after the Holy Ghost came upon him and anointed him. Now, if Jesus was operating as the Son of God here on the earth, how can you anoint God? Who would anoint God? The implication is a greater one gives something to a lesser one. And only in the sense that Jesus had emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory was he a lesser one. But that's what the Bible says he did it for, to come to the earth to be found in fashion as a man. But when the Holy Ghost comes on him, he begins doing the healing miracles and the healing works and other miracles as well and displaying the power of God upon him. In other words, Jesus operated here on the earth as a man anointed of the Holy Ghost. The example that he set for us, the reason that he said the same works that I do shall you do also. The reason he said occupy till I come. The reason he told us to do the same things that he did and even greater things he said the church would do is because we've been made God men. We've been restored to righteousness. Our nature has returned to the nature of God. And we've been anointed of the Holy Ghost to do the same works. Now, folks, i got to tell you, this is the point where the church either goes to the right or to the left. This is the point where the church either goes towards strength or weakness. This is the issue that will determine whether you will receive and see and operate in and experience what the Bible says God has for you or not. It doesn't determine your salvation. Your attitude about Jesus does. Your choice concerning Jesus is the only thing that affects a person's salvation. But whether you're a strong believer or a weak one, whether you're somebody that experiences what the Bible tells us Jesus purchased for us by the shedding of his precious blood, that'll be determined by what you believe about who you've been made. I have a lot of experience, many years of my life were governed by the thought that I wasn't really righteous, even though I knew the Bible says that I was. 
but that my idea of righteousness was says God putting a temporary cloak on my shoulders so that he could say I was righteous so that I could get into heaven. But I didn't really believe that it was who I was made to be. But folks, well, the Bible says Jesus was made sin. The example he used in the type that he fulfilled from the Old Testament was when Moses put the serpent of brass on the pole and lifted it up before the people to bring healing to those that had disobeyed God and put themselves in a position of condemnation. Jesus identified with that and said that he would have to be lifted up in the same manner. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, became so overcome by sin when God laid the sin of mankind upon him. But even when we use the word laid, again, there's the idea that God just put something over on him. And it wasn't who he really was. But the Bible instead says that he made him. God made Jesus to be sin for us. Jesus became sin. And the scripture says that his visage at this point in time when these things happened. His visage became so marred. In other words, his appearance was such that he didn't even look human. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I believe it to be true, but I don't know what that would look like. But it was a sign. It was a very direct and simple sign of what the sacrifice would have to be for us to come out of spiritual death and into eternal life. We've been made God men, we've been made God women. The nature of God in us, the righteousness that we've been restored to, is so absolute and so complete that there is never any room in any way whatsoever for the devil to take us back to the place that we were. When the Bible talks about who we become after being born again, who we become because of Jesus' sacrifice, it uses terms that are beyond our understanding. It uses terms that we have to choose to agree with because our experience certainly doesn't bear it out. The Bible says there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says there will never be any condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Unless we choose not to accept what Jesus has done for us. This is what happened at the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth failed to receive long life. And they were weak and sickly. Many in the church were weak and sickly. And the Bible identifies that the reason for that is because they did not rightly discern the Lord's body. They didn't recognize that the communion elements that they received represented not just his blood, but his body as well. And the Bible says that many were weak and sickly among them, and many died prematurely. And that it was because they brought condemnation on themselves 
They brought condemnation on themselves, not because they had sinned, not because they had made mistakes like we all do, not because they had missed the mark. They brought condemnation on themselves because they failed to recognize that Jesus' blood was shed for their sickness, for the physical well-being and health of their body, just as much as for their spirits. But that wasn't condemnation from God. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in another place, the second letter to the Corinthians. I'm sorry, the first letter. He wrote to the Corinthians twice about the same subject. But in 1 Corinthians, it tells us about someone that was living openly in sin in the church where a guy had taken his father's wife and was living with her openly as husband and wife themselves. You remember what Paul said to do about that? Paul said, when you come together and my spirit is there joined with you. He said, I've already judged and have turned this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Notice even when the church discipline, the most extreme case of church discipline that we see recorded in in the, the church age. Even when that takes place, it's the devil that destroys the flesh, not God. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, removed God's hand of protection over this person because of the seriousness of the sin. But even at that, God didn't destroy the flesh. Even at that, God didn't condemn them. The man brought condemnation on himself through his own actions, through his own behavior. We've been made God men and women. We therefore have a responsibility, a right certainly, but a responsibility to manifest that righteousness. Now how do we do that? Proverbs chapter 12 says that when we speak the truth, we do show forth righteousness. That brings us to our fourth point. And that fourth point is very simply this. Words govern both realms, the seen and the unseen. When the Bible says God made man in his own image and gave him authority over the earth, the very fact that it says that we've been made in the likeness and the image of God. Now, one of the words means appearance. So then what would the other word mean? Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Is it the image of God that's the appearance? Or is it the likeness of God that's the appearance? Well, the image of God means that we look like him. And you may remember when Moses asked to see the glory of God, God said, you can't see my glory and live. You can't see my face and live. He said, but here's what I'll do. I'll put you in a cleft, a crack, a broken place in the rock. That's a type of Jesus. And I'll put my hand upon you to cover you. And then as I pass by, I'll let all my goodness pass by. And then you can see my back parts. Well, folks, if... The back parts aren't distinguishable from the front parts. What's the point in saying back parts? It indicates that we have the same visage, the same appearance as God. God has a hand. He has a face. He has a back and back parts. Sounds a lot like a human body. So without a doubt, we're made in God's image. But where it says we're made in his likeness, that means we operate like he does. Now, the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1 
identifies 10 different times when God said something and then it became to be. It says, and God said, let there be light and there was light, for example. 10 times it tells us in that one chapter that God exercised his authority on this new creation, this new earth, through the words that he spoke. So when the Bible says that we've been made in the image and the likeness of God, not only have we been made to appear in the same fashion as our Heavenly Father, but we've been made to operate in the same way He does too. How does He operate? Through words. Mark chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith your words govern you folks your words govern what you will have of God your words govern what you will experience in this life if Jesus told us the truth your words control everything about your life here on this earth your words control everything about your spiritual life. If you're going to have more knowledge and more revelation of the things of God, it'll be because you say so. If you come to the understanding that God wants you to have, it'll be because you say so, and it will only be because you say so. God identifies in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 14. After the children of Israel have spied out the land, the 12 spies go into the land of Canaan. And they come back and 10 of them say, we can't do what God said. God calls that temptation being tempted 10 times. There were 10 different people that said, we can't do what God said we can do. The land that he said is ours isn't really ours. God calls that being tempted 10 times. Two of them, however, Caleb and Joshua, who saw the same thing that the other 10 said. Saul came back and said we can do it because God's for us they remembered what God had done to the Egyptian army they weren't worried about the armies of the people in the land of Canaan in the promised land they weren't worried about their armies because they remembered they meaning Caleb and Joshua just those two they remembered what God did to Pharaoh how soon the others had forgotten it's only been two or two and a half years from the time that they were led from the bondage of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground to when they get to the edge of the promised land. And in those two or two and a half years, they had completely forgotten, even after the things God had done for them in the meantime, between Egypt and the promised land. He did some wonderful miracles to show them who he was. But they had forgotten. And so God said this. God said to Moses, tell them that as surely as I am, this is an ordinance and a statute unto them. Now when it says as surely as I am, when God prefaced it by saying and swearing by himself as surely as I am, how is he? Well, there are two characteristics that apply to the statute and the ordinance that he made for them. First is God never changes, so it's an unchanging ordinance. The second is that God is eternal, so it's an eternal ordinance. It's an eternal and an unchanging ordinance. 
here's the rule that will never be broken for all of eternity. Not just while the earth is here. But for all eternity, here's an unchanging and eternal principle that God established. He said, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Now, folks, that's just as true for you and me as it was for them. It's just as true on the positive side to receive the blessings and the goodness of God as it was for them in rebelling against God. And it worked out just to be exactly what God said. Everybody in that story got exactly what they said. Caleb and Joshua said we can do it, and they did. It detoured them for 40 years. It hindered them for 40 years. But the ten said that they'd die in the wilderness, and they did. Caleb and Joshua said we can take it because God's for us, and 40 years later they did. It is the unchanging and eternal principle that as you speak in God's ears, so shall it be unto you. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. Now, heaven and earth passing away, that's the physical realm. He said, but my words will never fail. The word of God could not be of greater importance. And us speaking the word of God could not be of greater importance. It's the way that we overcome everything that the devil has his hand in. It's the way that we overcome the influence of this natural life, this physical realm. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, I believe. He said, by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. So these are the four things that I think are most important for every Christian to know. Reality is not just what you see. The word is above everything. God has made us God men and women through the new creation. And your words will govern both realms. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that you are exactly who you reveal yourself to be in our word. In your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have. To be pleasing unto you by walking in faith and saying what you say. We thank you for the authority that you've given us here on this earth. Authority to overcome every work of the devil that comes against us. Authority to be your hands, your feet, and an expression of your love here in the earth. We thank you, Father, for the precious and holy spirit of God that brings your word to our remembrance. We thank you that your word is truth. It doesn't just contain truth. It is truth. And when we speak your word, no matter what things look around us, we have spoken the truth. We thank you, Father, for making us righteous. And we do not count it a light thing to recognize that we are born again of your very nature. We do not consider it to be a light thing to recognize the authority that we've been given here on this earth. We do not consider it to be a light thing 
to exercise that authority through the words of our mouth. So we say and we declare before heaven and earth and hell itself, we've been made new by the blood of Jesus. We've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Our righteousness is of God, not of ourselves. And we have authority here on this earth. Satan, we refuse to yield to sickness and disease. We refuse to yield to poverty and lack. We refuse to yield to any work of the enemy. But instead, we declare that by the word of God and the name of Jesus, we are free from every evil work. We are free from all of the works of the evil one. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand together. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Now say it this way. For the Lord is good, and his mercy to me endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. And if we don't see you tonight, have a great Memorial Day too.